Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody is having a great President's Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After a few banner weeks, global crises, particularly the Houthi attacks that have driven shipping around Africa rather than through the Suez Canal, is driving financial worries. China's economy goes from bad to worse. Airbus CAE Parsons are among the companies to report earnings. Russia kills Alexei Navalny. Ukraine begs for more aid and strikes security and arms deals with France and Germany as GOP lawmakers continue to balk on helping Ukraine. The U.S. Air Force reorganizes for great power conflict as it drives hard to field capabilities like the next generation air dominance family of systems, as well as the collaborative combat aircraft, and our expectations for this Singapore air show. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, uh, welcome back. Wouldn't be a weekend uh, without you all, Ron. Uh, start us off. Um, the hilarity or tragedy of markets is they're either up, up, up or down, down, down. And it normally is an emotional roller coaster, as uh, Sasha and I discussed before uh, we got started today. All of a sudden, despite positive economic news, pretty much all around, with the exception of, of China, um, there are suddenly worries. Uh, about the cost of goods, uh, that, you know, because obviously they're now going all the way around Africa and because of Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, which means higher shipping costs as opposed to going straight through the Suez Canal. This was sort of known, but it's all of a sudden it's an, it's an issue. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the broader economic dynamics and then how the group performed against those broader dynamics. The big worry, I think, ultimately is when will the Fed begin to cut? Uh, coming into this year, I think some investors thought, I mean, I think probably the consensus view that the Fed would start cutting sooner than later. And now it seems like um, the view is switching to, oh, maybe the Fed's going to start cutting later instead of sooner. When you look at the market, I mean, kind of on balance, given where valuations are and market performance, the S&P was off 42 basis, basis points for the week, essentially flat. Uh, the 10-year yield was 4.3%, up a teeny weeny bit, not a heck of a lot. The VIX was at around 14. That's about where it closed last week. Um, you know, WTI crude was 79. So Vago, I'll give you one guess. Where was Brent? At five. You know, it was 84. Five, $5, $5. Yep. So yep. it was 84. Um, and, 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 and broadly, and you look across the performance in our group, uh, you know, Boeing was down about two and a half percent. And, you know, Boeing's got its own dynamics going on. But, you know, the, the performance wasn't really all that different than the market. I mean, Raytheon was up 55 basis points. GD was down 26. It was that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the two names that really moved the most in the week were CAE. They reported this week and disappointed investors. And their numbers were down about 10%. Excuse me, the stock was down about 10%. And Bombardier was up about 9% after reporting last week and being down a lot. So it was just sort of, you know, covering the ground. So really, I mean, given all the noise and this and that, I mean, the market was really sort of just sort of brushed it all off when it's all said and done. We've been talking about supplemental funding. Um, I think uh, President Biden is on the mark, and I think many people would agree that, unfortunately, Avdivka, uh, Ukrainian forces uh, retreated from Avdivka, uh, handing the Russians a big victory. And, and that's in part because supplemental spending, uh, a new supplemental package for Ukraine has been delayed, $95 billion approved by the Senate last week before they left town. The House didn't even pick it up uh, before leaving town for a two-week recess. So 
That means that Ukrainians who are already hanging on by their fingernails are going to have to hang on longer. Sash, we can discuss this in greater detail later. Um, how, I mean, does this making any impact on investors? And especially as we run out of continuing resolution money, I mean, everybody's going to have to come back from recess and strike a deal for another continuing resolution or a budget. How are investors looking at all this? Yeah, I think broadly investors kind of you know, calculated if you want the markets discounting in that it would be a messy process, right? So uh, I, I don't think there's all that much surprise in the market. I would say when it's all said and done, if a deal isn't struck and we don't get you know a, a an actual budget done at some point, that that'll probably be seen as a negative. But given all the noise and headlines and this and that, I don't think that's really out of the market psychology right now for um, you know the defense world and you know, they were just expecting it you know given you know, all, you know, all the volatility on the hill i mean it's probably a pretty reasonable view <laughs> they, they're they're riding a different emotional roller coaster they won't worry about that one until until they have to get onto that ride uh which i think is is uh hilarious uh sash um after you know you're in a different place now so after decades of riding that roller coaster you have a somewhat more relaxed outlook on life um uh, improving economic news, obviously, uh, UK and Europe. Let's talk less about that and more particularly uh, particularly about how the Aerospace and Defense Group uh, performed over the last week and why. The Aerospace and Defense Group absolutely bifurcated uh, last week in terms of performance. Um, the civil stocks were up 1.6%. And actually, that was a it, of itself a composite of Airbus that was off about 3% and Safran that was up um, uh, about four and a half uh four and a half uh five five percent and um mtu sort of came up in in line with um with saffron uh so basically the aero engine companies are having a better time but we can do, we'll talk about airbus later but the real blowout performance was the defense stocks defense stocks were overall including some laggards up over seven percent but a, a whole clutch of the mid caps uh, we're up in double digits for the week. Um, and some of them now are up over 40% on the year, having been up 40% last year and 40% the year before. These are astonishing performances. So Hensolt up 13%, Kongsberg up 9%, Leonardo up 11%, Rheinmetall up 15%, Saab up 9%. These are, these are massive performances. And this was very much driven by... I mean, clearly, there's there's been good earnings. You know, Kongsberg and Saab reported the year the the week before, but um, I think it's much more by the uh, uh, concern that if uh, European and US, for for that matter, um, su support to Ukraine doesn't notch up very substantially, you know, Ukraine might just go under, and we're starting to see again. We'll, get, we'll talk about this later. Some signs of uh, you know quite big contracts either being signed or promised to Ukraine by uh, last week, uh, France and Germany a couple of weeks ago, uh, the UK. Um, but overall, you know, there's a feeling that defence spending is going up. Whether it's going up enough, I doubt. Whether it's going up enough in the right directions, i.e. to Ukraine, probably not. But um, for stocks that, you know, have had a pretty dreadful two and a half decades or thereabouts, uh, th this is the stuff that a super cycle is made of. Uh, and it's really, but it was a remarkable week in terms of share price performances. Um, and uh, we'll uh, get to uh, Ukraine in uh, a little bit. Uh, Richard, you're our uh, resident Chinese uh, economic uh, watcher. 
Um, things really are going bad to worse. Um, many of Xi Jinping's own policies have been really driving away, uh, you know, have had a financial impact in driving away capital, uh, but it's also had uh, the impact of driving away intellectual capital, right? Uh, you know, a, a lot fewer people are interested in going and starting businesses in China, including Chinese, and many Chinese, you know, don't, don't want to stay in China uh, if uh, they've, they've got the talent and the skill, right? I mean, they've seen what, what happens to folks who stick their heads up or for whatever reason, you know, get accused of corruption or, or what have you for reasons that have nothing to do with actual corruption, maybe. Um Walk, walk us through sort of the, Ch the Chinese economy, where it's going and what it sort of means, because we're not yet decoupled, right? Boeing still depends on uh, sales. Airbus still depends on sales on the Chinese and continued growth, for example, in the Chinese air traffic market. And we've not been seeing that, right? Uh, oddly. Anyway, walk, walk us through what all of this means from your perspective, uh, especially as Airbus reports. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, who could have possibly seen that a crackdown on the private economy and the tech sector, coupled with a, a massive surge in state-owned enterprise funding, and of course, a heavy emphasis on the property market and government investment would lead to economic disaster? Who could have possibly seen that? Obviously, anybody could have been seen to, that. That was... Nobody that could have seen just it. out of nowhere. Uh, Unless nowhere. I'm just yeah. throwing this out there, but they'd gone to say, I don't know, community college and taken econ 101 as part of that. So they're the only people, you know, so that that percent of the population are the only group that could have possibly seen this recipe for failure. Um, and sure enough, it's ending in failure. Uh, in addition to the, you know, truly awful property markets, truly awful equities markets, uh, pretty much anything you'd use for an index. There are some people who think GDP has gone negative. Uh, that's quite possible. It is noteworthy. We just had the fourth straight month of deflation. Everyone else in the world, of course, worried about the other thing. <laughs> What's the opposite? Right. And they've got deflation for four months now, and they've been flirting with it for some time. So the CPI is not in good shape. Um, all of this is indicative of an economy that's, you know, they're losing the race to get rich before they get old. Have a nice day. Now, um, what does this mean? The three things that we watch, one is, as you say, you know, demand for Western jetliners that continues to be suppressed last year. You know, they went from 23% of global demand to 9% last year. That's not going to, you know, hopefully decline too much more because domestic air traffic at least is fully back. That's good. And showing some very modest signs of modest growth. And, you know, even if it's 9%, that's, that's still a market you have to pay attention to. And if Airbus gets all of it, that's bad for Boeing. Uh, the other thing, of course, is China as a threat. And there's the sort of, you know, crisis window whereby they decide to act and seize Taiwan as a way of distracting against grim economic realities at home. And some people think that they've got a few years before, you know, the U.S. thoroughly, you know, re-equips for necessary conflicts in the Pacific and whatever else. Will that move the day to the left? I don't know. I hope that's not a theory that's, you know, uh, that's accurate. That is to say, the idea that a declining economy and a declining power is more dangerous than one that is rising. That's that's a perfectly respectable theory. We don't know. I hope not. And then the last thing we focus on is uh, emphasis on China's own aerospace industry. And all of this is very good for that, strangely, because frankly, in the absence of anything else, you know, they've already suppressed the tech sector, suppressed, as you say, intellectual capital and anybody who'd want to have that entrepreneurial spirit 
because it would create some sort of, you know, menace to society in terms of, uh, you know, people who weren't the Chinese Communist Party, effectively. Um, and, and, and you failed with investment. You know, you got lots of bridges to nowhere, effectively. And you failed in the property market. Evergrande's bankruptcy a month or liquidation a month or two ago certainly speaks to that. That's all miserably failed. What do you got left? And the answer is that confluence of national security and state-owned enterprise known as, you know, well, you become a technocrat and put money into everything from semiconductors to jetliners. So I think you're going to see a doubling down on the development of Chinese aerospace industry products. Will it be successful? Certainly not. Uh, but nevertheless, you're going to see an awful lot of resources pumped into it. And that's going to see some, show, you know, possibly useful, possibly not useful technology development. Um, I'm, I'm just going to push back a little bit. I think it'll be successful. It might not be as successful as a Western product. It depends on how you're defining success, right? If you want to build up your own industry or willing to throw money into it, I don't think the Chinese are going to worry particularly much whether or not any of these airplanes become big successes. It's just eventually they will become successes. I, I think, agree. I agree. Uh, is, will they become global successes? Perhaps not. Chinese successes with significant levels of production for China? Absolute agreement. We're going to change up the order a little bit. And Sasha, you're going to start us off uh, on Airbus because you're, uh, let's face it, a lot uh, closer uh, and watch the company closely. And then uh, Ron and Richard can, can dive in on your initial take on their earnings. Uh, a little bit softer, right, last year than, than I think we had expected. Anyway, walk us through uh, what they uh, reported uh, and ultimately what it means. Airbus record, reported Q4. And I, I mean, to a degree, this just tells us something about how high the bar is set for Airbus. The results were fine, objectively. Uh, you know, they made a great deal of money. They generated cash. They have net cash. They're raising production rates. Um, but because the bar is set very high for Airbus at the moment, actually, the market thought, meh, you know, it's, it's fine, but it's it's no great shakes. And, uh, you know, the shares are off about 3% for the week. Um, I mean, you know, to be picky on, on Q4, you'll remember they announced very, very good uh, December uh, deliveries. They delivered about 30 aircraft more for the full year than they've guided, 735 compared to uh, around 700. Um, and actually, that didn't drop through that much to profit. Um, the operational leverage there was was no great shakes. Uh, and that's always interesting. It just shows how much Airbus is having to, to spend to recruit more people to actually make sure that they get aircraft out of the door in relatively good shape. Uh, and also uh, investing for the future, whether it's capital or, or R&D and so forth. Um, uh, they didn't guide particularly aggressively for 2024 either, eight, about 800 deliveries. Now, you know, they've got into the habit of lowballing, um, and that's that's one of the ways that you, you try to play the equity market. So my bet would be that it will be 800 and change, possibly quite a lot of change. But uh, it's still, it's not 850, not 860, which is, I think, what... A year ago, we would have expected them to do, given their ambitions to produce 75 A320s a month uh, in, 20, uh, in 2026, ramping up uh, the A220 from 6 to 14 and adding a couple of extra aircraft to the wide bodies. You know, it's it really feels more like a, I don't know, J-curve, hockey stick, pick your analogy, but uh, a fairly slow 2024 and then it improves. There were a couple of things that I thought were really, really interesting coming out of uh, the um, the call. Um, the first is that uh, Chief Executive Guillaume Forey 
referred multiple times to safety and how important safety and building safe aircraft is. Um, and I, you know, I uh, hope I hope that Ron and Rachel can sort of put me right on this. But I had always imagined or understood that talking about safety in this industry is the equivalent of touching the third rail. You don't do it because once you start talking about safety, you imply there is a lot, a lack of safety somewhere, and that discourages people from flying. Um, I thought it was astonishing that uh, again, Forey repeated the word safety and emphasised Airbus building safe aircraft several times because it implies somebody else doesn't. Um, and then there was a, there was another really interesting comment. Could, um, could I, of... may I just may, may I just pull on that a little bit? I mean, do you think that it's merely reassuring the public that people were looking at uh, Boeing trying to push out as many airplanes as possible? And when you're already up to 800, um, north of 800, that you might want to remind everybody that even though that you can push out airplanes, but actually do it safely. And we're just reminding everybody we're double checking and making sure that right bolt, bolts are tight. Yeah. Is there something to be said there? I'm sure that that is possible. And I think that's a, you know, it's a very important message to send, but still, you know, safety has never been the way that these companies have competed or commented um, in my uh, right. experience before so you know, even mentioning the s word i'm not you know i sat up like i'd been you know electrocuted the first time it was used and it wasn't much it wasn't much less of a surprise that you know the second time in there in 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 right. the call um there was another really interesting call as well uh, a comment um where uh you know uh, mr forey talked about how management and I'm, i'll quote must be schizophrenic constantly look at all the stakeholders around you and not just focus on one. Um, and this was partly related to some early comments on safety, partly related to some comments uh, about capital returns and capital allocation. And it felt to me like it was a pretty clear rebuke of Boeing's share buybacks and the state that the company's got itself into. And it was also sending quite a clear message uh, to um, investors of, don't expect Airbus to pay out a lot of cash just because we Airbus have got 11 billion of net cash at the moment. We're not going to go down the same route. We're not going to uh, give it all back to you. We need to have a super strong balance sheet. Uh, very, very interesting message uh, to send that. Um, and you know, at least two different ways you can uh, you, you can take that. But um, you know, overall, these were these were very different, very uh, nuanced uh, replies um, for a company that is objectively performing pretty well, but they are clearly concerned that you cannot take your eye off the ball any time because of how fragile the supply chain is. And um, you know they've seen what happens when companies focus on stuff other than proper engineering. Ron and Richard, your guys take on Airbus and more importantly, or as importantly, what do you think it means for Boeing? Yeah, point well taken on the safety third rail. Having said that, you know, they have sort of flirted with that before. There was the legendary series of ads in a desperate effort to save the the flailing and, and ridiculous A340 program back 20-something years ago. You know, four engines for safety. That was competing on safety. They got their asses handed to them for that. They deserve to. This time, I, I Ron, I and I'd love to get your opinion on this, but I agree with uh, with 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 Sash. I think it, it's skirting the line, but not over the line. At least I think that was your intention, Sash. Uh, I, I agree with that. You know, it. I, I think the the 
industry could use a little reassurance right now. And it doesn't look like they're competing on that basis. After all, to a certain extent, market shares are kind of locked in for the next few years. Not a lot of outstanding single-aisle sales campaigns out there. Um, and certainly the 320 doesn't need saving. Um, the other thing that hits me, so I'm, I, I think I'll allow it, but I understand your reservations. Uh, the other thing that hits me is that so much of this industry has become, you know, what Airbus does with the commanding heights, you know, how quickly they can ramp up Hamburg to produce ridiculous numbers of A321neos per year, uh, and also what they get by way of pricing now that Boeing has, Dave Calhoun and company have generously, generously, uh, from an Airbus perspective, told customers that the A321neo is the only game in town. Uh, you know, to what extent they begin to harvest higher prices, and to what extent does Airbus lead the way out of a deflationary industry. I think I think there's a lot of great potential ahead. And, uh, you know, even though it was sort of a, a muted set of results, as uh, Sash says, um, the future looks seriously good until Boeing can get some proper leadership in place. I don't think it's positioned as competing on safety. Um, remember our CEO spoke at the Wings Club a couple of weeks back and kind of had a similar message. Hey, you know, we can build airplanes and we have control over our processes. There's a there's a public perception issue that has to get addressed, and I I think it's fair game for an OEM to come out and say, actually we we do think we have good control over our our safety processes and quality control and so on and so forth. And I think it's a very fair message to send. Hey, you know what? You know we're not going to give you. All this cash back because we're actually an airplane company and we have to develop things and that's kind of how the business works i think those are all very 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 fair messages um you know the, the whole expectations game is always tricky right um when you're kind of the lead horse and, and your expectations maybe get ahead of themselves you know who knows but um you know if they just keep doing what they're doing they're they're clearly in a leadership position and like like richard said it's sort of like now you know, do they, in, from that leadership position, uh, particularly with an airplane that doesn't have a competitor, can they, you know, get some price? I mean, that would seem like a rational thing to do, right, ultimately. Um, the same thing in the market for, for jet engines. Um, there's a ton of demand for leaps, given what's going on with uh, the GTF. Uh, you know, would it be smart for GE to just take share or say, you know what, um, maybe we can get some price here. Um, so... Uh, we'll we'll see where that goes, but um, I'm not as disturbed by the comments around quality and so on and so forth because one of the major competitors has had quality issues. Um, it's just a fact, right? So um, in the end, you know, years ago I used to train horses, and um, there's a saying: "Control what you create," and um, that's kind of the position that Boeing has got themselves into. You know, if you kick the horse hard and the bucks, well, you got to deal with it. I think when you have a major player that is having the kind of problems it does, I think the whole ecosystem has to respond to it, especially when it extends to, unfortunately, spirit, um, you know, questions about other suppliers, right? I mean, I'm surprised there aren't a little bit more airline questions uh, as well, right? I mean, Alaska has, a, a you know, is, is considered a, you know, a good airline, uh, but it also may not have handled uh, things maybe as well as it it should have, uh, you know, based based on the reporting, right? So, I, I I don't think it's unreasonable that the entire ecosystem, 
is is forced to address address it. And I just have to say that when Airbus was created, um, you know, I mean, you know, Boeing was casting a lot of shade about the safety. You know, when when Airbus had a series of unfortunate accidents, you know, there were suggestions that somehow the airplane the company wasn't producing safe airplanes. Uh, oh, look at their you know mishaps and and stuff like that. Uh, just like you know, uh, you know, I mean, thankfully we've moved beyond that pettiness. When each time there was an accident, it was an Airbus guy reminding you, "Hey, that was a Boeing that crashed," or it was a Boeing guy reminding you that an Airbus had crashed. I'm glad we've made a lot of progress since then because I don't think you really need to, you know, unnecessarily scare the traveling public in order to sell your product. Uh, a quick word from our sponsors: the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by Bell. HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. All right, we're going to change gears and go to the defense uh, portion uh, of uh, the discussion. I was in Denver uh, for the rollout of the U.S. Air Force's uh, generational reorganization uh, for great power conflict. Um, it was uh, rolled out by uh, both uh, the Secretary, Frank Kendall, and uh, the Chief of Staff, General Alvin. Uh, and also, I commend folks to go back uh, to next week, uh, to last week, and check out our interviews with General Alvin, uh, as well as with uh, the Secretary discussing this and other uh, issues. They want to consolidate requirements setting, right? Not have it sprinkled across uh, the uh, uh, major commands, and indeed a much bigger focus on integrated uh, capability development, right? That we we really cannot afford to be developing systems in uh, stovepipes. Um, a little bit about space threats in general. Uh, Salty Saltzman, the chief of space operations, saying, hey, look, the space community has been a little bit like the merchant marine, and we have to transform into a Navy. And there are a huge number of steps involved in, in getting there. Uh, and as the conference was breaking up, news, uh, you know, after the conference had broken up, actually, news broke that uh, the Russians looked like they were considering fielding uh, a nuclear-tipped anti-satellite uh, weapon. Uh, obviously using an electromagnetic pulse to affect uh, some of the networks that we have in space. You know, senior leaders were all talking about the kind of capitalization we need in the next generation of spacecraft. Um, you know, Richard or Ron, if you guys want to start uh, start off, right? I mean, do, do we know enough to know how big of an impact this is going to be on industry and how it does business with the department? Department of the Air Force, I should say. Richard, why don't you start off on uh, the reorganization and what you made of it, and then we can we can go to Ron, and then I'll move over uh, to to Sash to ask about Ukraine. You know, I think it's a good idea, um, obviously, but it's been a good idea for some time now, and I think we've heard similar things before. It's never too late to start, but you know, I mean, there was a certain you know air power nineteen ninety nine sort of thing going on. I mean, the idea of having you know air platforms and whatever else as nodes rather than you know, just mere platforms that do one particular purpose. That's been around for some time, right? And of course, you had, you know, palletized concepts for transport aircraft doing more than just one thing. And of course, you've had the concept of, you know, taking stealth combat aircraft and turning them into special mission aircraft and whatever else, even transports is, you know, missile carrying missileers you know, around for quite some time. Um, I, I welcome the idea of, you know, sort of going ahead with that and giving things a variety of new capabilities and thinking outside the box in terms of missions and roles for, for you know, systems and platforms, um, you know, and obviously now that you do have a family of things in gestation, everything from, you know, NGAD to CCA to 
presumably KCZ or, you know, next generation uh, air, air refueling system or whatever else. And of course, probably a CX, you know, almost certainly there's a CX because the C5 and C17 are wearing out a lot faster than expected aging. And, you know, there's generally the strategic requirement given, you know, the Pacific. Uh, so when there is a C-17 and there is all these things, why not give them, you know, capabilities to do far more than their stated, uh, you know, primary roles? Um, what does that mean for industry? I, I would think it would hopefully mean, you know, more cross-company or not intra-company, but inter-company cooperation, you know, with folks being asked to weigh in and provide various subsystems or integrated pat, uh, mission equipment packages or optional mission equipment packages for a, a variety of things. I, I'd like to see, you know, more of that. That's certainly good. Um, but, you know, it's it's too soon to know because a lot of this, of course, become, begins at the, the program management level. You know, are they going to think in terms of their traditional stovepipes? Are they going to respond to the challenge and say, all right, you know, let's think more broadly about what this new platform or in new system can uh, can actually accomplish? Um, and I, I should say that this harkens back a little bit, uh, right? I mean, I, it's funny you said uh, 1999, but, you know, it's a little bit to recreate the Aeronautical Systems Center and the more integrated approach the Air Force used to have to acquisition before it sort of broke up that kind of capability for a whole variety of reasons. And they want to sort of recreate it both in the Pentagon, um, where there'll be uh, an integrated uh, 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 capabilities office, and then another one in the materiel command that it was, will do the acquisitions, right? So, um, you know, the, the requirement setting is going to be much, much more integrated as opposed to happening uh, at, at the command level. Um, Ron, uh, let me kind of go over to you, because one of the reasons the Air Force is doing this, right, it's looking at how it better develops people through an airman develop airman development command it's looking at power projection and you know some of the combat edge stuff uh and how units are uh set up um you know disaggregate the base from the wing right wing commanders uh do, do not necessarily need to be base commanders anymore i think they're going back to the base is the base the wing is the wing one focuses on combat the other one focuses on all the the, the back shop uh, support uh, and obviously here on on acquisition and, and requirement setting on the next generation air dominance things are moving I think remarkably fast uh, I mean we're, we're looking at 2028 to be first unit equipped albeit that this program has been top secret and really going on for some period of time right it, it didn't start just a couple of uh, years ago but by the end of the year we'll know whether or not Boeing or Lockheed uh, are going to be uh, the prime on that you have collaborative combat aircraft uh, and that looks like it's got a little bit of a new wrinkle, right? It was going to go from five competitors down to two. Uh, in a couple of months, the secretary said, hey, we may want to have one more in there, a third uh, aircraft uh, moving ahead. And, you know, the consensus sort of was it would be uh, General Atomics and Northrop that would move forward. So now everybody's asking, OK, is the third one that moves ahead? You know, is it is it Andrew? Is it Boeing? You know, is it loyal wingman in order to satisfy Australians or or what have you? You know, Air Force officials are like, look, everybody relax. It's not going to be convoluted. Um, you know, we did talk about increment one and increment two. What, what do you what do you you know, even though the Air Force is trying to say not a lot because these programs are both highly classified, uh, especially NGAD, they are talking a little bit more. And, and the secretary has said we need a couple of hundred CCAs is the intent. You know, at at the end of this future year's defense plan, which is a pretty big accomplishment, if we could we could do that, 
What, what, are you, what are you picking up from all of this and what do you think that it means and what's the progress you're seeing on some of these programs or, or the ways that you're thinking about them as, as the service sort of charges ahead with them? Yeah, I mean, one of the questions we got this week was you know, the announcement that in the next budget, the number of F-35s is going to be cut back from where everybody thought it would be. Um, and, you know, given that you know, the, the the time frame that NGAD is on, is that really all that surprising, right? I mean, there's not an infinite amount of money, so funds have to move around. So if, if NGAD's moving right along, is it any big surprise that you're seeing a little bit less money spent on, on F-35? Yeah, you know, probably not. Um, you know, my, my broader questions on NGAD, you know, you know what, what engine is going to be on it? Is it going to be, um, you know, one of the variants of the XA, you know, 100 or 101? Um, so you're going to use that engine technology. Is it going to be an extension of existing engine technology? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, how can I say, it's, an, it's, an, it's encouraging that, that that's, that's happening. Um, we'll see where the down select is. I presume that even though it's classified, um, they'll, say who won it or we'll see it in their numbers or right. so on and so forth. Um, and then on the CCAs, um, I, I find it actually encouraging that they're going to, you know, potentially have a third player. You've got a number of, of companies that could be really reasonable competitors for um, one of these aircraft. Um, you know, the two you mentioned, General Atomics has been a longtime player as is Northrop. But like you mentioned, there's, there's Andrel, there's Kratos, um, there's maybe even some others. Um, so yeah, I mean, if they can, you know, get another player in the mix, um, having a little bit more competition and then that's probably not a bad idea if they can, if they can afford it. Right. So, so I'm encouraged by that. Um, I think the broader investment community, because there's such a veil on NGAD isn't really connecting the dots and saying, Hey, you know what, um, if F-35 numbers come down and Lockheed wins this hmm, on balance, that's probably pretty good for Lockheed. Right. Um, I don't. I don't think they're making. They're not connecting those dots yet, and we'll we'll see how that goes. I think this. You know, the, the surprise of the decade would be if Boeing won it. Um, you know, I, I think you know, the Boeing's defense business, as you well know, we've talk, spoken about it, uh, is seen in the investment community as as being not in a great position. Um, so if they were to win something like this, a it would be it would be seen a for sure positive. And then B, the question would be, why did they win it given their performance? But you know, that is what it is. So yeah, we'll see where it all goes. Um, one, one of the other interesting elements of this, uh, you know, you mentioned Kratos, right? I mean, they didn't make it into increment one, but everybody's being told that just because you didn't make it in, into increment one, you can make it into increment two. I think the other interesting thing is that there is a desire, uh, based on conversations I had in Denver, to have whatever the winners are to have very different supply chains so that there is no vulnerability. And this program helps actually to build out greater industrial capacity and more competition for the future and get rid of some of those single points of failure that exist in the ecosystem today. So I think it's kind of, you know, I mean, right. But the concern then is that whatever is fielded may be more expensive because it is different and coming from different suppliers as opposed to having, um, you know, greater commonality among all of the uh, aircraft, it, what, which, I, which I think is interesting. I mean, I would add to that. I mean, just there's, there's a couple of complications there, right? So, you know, in the end, you know, the DOD, I would presume, wants value for their money, but their mission's broader than that, right? So, 
sometimes you do have to pay more, right? They're not buying commercial airplanes. It's a different mission. So that just is what it is. The, I think the more difficult thing, and you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you know both Richard and Zash think about this. There's just not that many suppliers out there. So if you're building, you know, CCA one and someone else is building CCA two, unless they're really different aircraft on, on on many different levels, there's just not that many suppliers that are that different, right? So having materially different supply chains on two aircraft that might have some overlapping capability um, seems like just I don't want to be harsh, but kind of like a little bit of a pipe dream, right? I mean, you know, it just as an example, and maybe not the best example, but if you look at the A320 supply chain and the 737 supply chain, there's 80% overlap. Um, so maybe, right. okay, you get it down to 50% overlap or 30% overlap, but there's still overlap, right? I mean, there's no way, right. I don't think you're going to do two airplanes and have completely separate supply chains. Like that seems yeah, just like not doable, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, Richard, and then uh, Sash, and then we can go to the Ukraine portion of the discussion. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, per Ron, there's, you know, the further down you go in the supply chain, the more you've got this brittleness, this vulnerability, the single points of failure. You know, I mean, my colleagues at Aerodynamic are constantly identifying, they call it a game of whack-a-mole, basically, the various bottlenecks in the aerospace supply chain, titanium-milled product, you know nickel castings and uh, you know and 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 whatever else up up to interiors it it happens right and uh per that level of overlap that ron talks about it happens in the combat aircraft industry too so i'm not so sure what happens because occasionally you'll see new market entrants you know your kratos is your andorils on the airframe integrator side but in terms of second third and fourth tier you see very few <laughs> new entrants so that's that's a problem uh, the only thing we can hope for is more cross-border cooperation with allies and occasionally internationally, you know, like KAI or someone like that comes online and that can help. But even in places like that, you know, Korea has KAI. It doesn't have many, you know, it's got Hanwha, but much below that in terms of supply right. chain companies, not a lot, you know, and uh, that that's that's an area of concern. One thing I'd say uh, per Ron's F-35 points, it, we still have that big conundrum. Everyone wants an F-35, yet they can't seem to get to 156, and they're not talking about moving beyond that. Yet we know if you flip the switch tomorrow, you'd build 250, 300 a year to satisfy demand. Now, the U.S. throttling back to 70, yeah, it probably is NGAD related, almost certainly. But I well, it's, wonder... it's also related to the readiness of the airplane, right? I mean, we haven't gone yes. to the new standard and the Air Force has been reluctant to go to the new standard, uh, yes, reluctant to build more airplanes to the old standard. Yes, that's right. Except that in theory, uh, sometime this year, second half, presumably block four comes online. So funding, you right. know, in FY24 shouldn't speak to that. Certainly current production levels should speak to that. But in terms of what we're putting in the budget for future you know, production, obviously, typically a two year wait or whatever. I, that's that, that's something different. That's the U.S. prioritizing cash. I wonder whether it doesn't signal to Lockheed Martin and the supply chain, you shouldn't invest in anything more than 156. And that might be problematic from the, you know, allied security standpoint. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, it's hopefully, hopefully, Lockheed Martin and company will take a, a slightly more entrepreneurial bent and say, hey, it looks like the market skyline chart is pretty darn good. I have a little concern there right. because while Lockheed Martin hasn't 
um, you know, uh, lobotomized itself the way Boeing did when it got rid of strategic functions, it has uh, it has ramped down a bit in terms of you know its understanding of markets and and future demands. And that, that to me is a concern because it seems like they should be thinking about how to squeeze more capacity out of the system. Um, two uh, other uh, interesting things about CCA is uh, that they do want it to be an allied uh, capability and are sharing or going to be sharing, or I believe have shared uh, some requirements with our closest allies and partners so that they have uh, a sense of what it is that we're doing. And then to try to shoot for architectural commonality, you know, across the Defense Department, you're seeing... Um, sort of the open architecture library approach and how it's helping folks uh, get into systems and actually make them easier to upgrade, right? Because you're looking at software upgrades as opposed to a lot of hardware upgrades to sort of improve capabilities. So that's, I think, another uh, thing that's uh, paying dividends. Um, uh, Sash, I know you don't have all that much uh, you want to talk to uh, about or add about CCN unless you really want to. But what I am particularly interested in is uh, that that Ukraine is at a perilous point. Um, it just retreated from Avdivka, giving Russians their first victory in a long time. Uh, Putin managed to kill kill off his leading uh, political opponent, Alexei Navalny, and he's assuming he will get away with that as he has everything else with relative impunity. I think uh, President Biden was right uh, to say that the cause of the Ukrainian defeat was, you know, because of U.S. inaction. I mean, and the Ukrainians have been saying we're burning up people at a humongous rate because we are just simply running out of, an, out of uh, am ammunition. EU uh, cl cleared $54 billion in aid. We saw Britain step up uh, just about a week or so ago uh, with military aid. We have France, Germany, uh, and Italy striking agreements this week and, and certainly uh, setting up co-production. There are also some big uh, announcements, I think, that are going to come uh, soon. Uh, from U.S. companies that are that are doing very much the same thing, BAE being also a leader, Rheinmetall being a leader. Um, walk us through all of the stuff that's happening in terms of building up European capability, uh, building up Ukraine's capability, and how much capability the Europeans can furnish in the timelines that are necessary for Ukraine. Because I was on a, um, a call with a European senior European official who basically said, look, there, there really is no plan B. Right. It, there's you. The United States is plan A when it comes to weapons deliveries for Ukraine uh, and that we, we just are not able to make up that difference that, that you would be able to make up. Anyway, give us this sense on what all of these agreements mean and how soon they're likely to be bearing fruit. And will they bear fruit at scales that are relevant for this conflict? What we're talking about is very, very different timelines for different things. First of all, take a step back. Individual countries in Europe are providing predominantly military aid. They are delivering stuff that can then be used on the battlefield. The European Union is doing that. Well, the European Union has no military aid to provide as such, but it's providing huge amounts of money. And what that's doing is keeping the Ukrainian economy going and indirectly paying for a lot of Ukrainian soldiers and so forth. The European Union aid is huge. It's tens of billions of dollars uh, per, per slice. But almost none of that is direct military aid. The direct military aid is coming directly from the, the countries concerned. And my um, worry is that the European countries themselves are still, uh, I'm not sure if they're ambivalent or whether they are just concerned that if they give away too much to Ukraine, um, we end up with you know, our own magazines completely empty. 
So let's just take an example of Germany. Germany uh, signed an agreement with Ukraine this week, and the agreement agreement was to provide 1.2 billion uh, euros worth of, of of stuff. I've got to say, I read it and I thought this is about a couple, you know, a couple of weeks consumption that Germany is offering to to su- supply. It's no more than that. It's twelve, uh, one, th- uh, sorry, 120,000 rounds of uh, ammunition. Ukraine could go through that literally in under a month. It's nothing. A hundred RST missiles for air defence. That's a that's a sort of busy but short week uh, around Kiev. Um, you know, you, the the Ukrainians can burn through a hundred air defence missiles very very quickly indeed if the Russians send over a big uh, swarm of drones and, and and missiles and so forth. Um, so I don't think the German military component. Um, as signed with uh, Ukraine this week, was at all impressive. Same goes for the French, frankly, same goes for the UK. You know, a billion here, a billion there. You may be talking about real money, but you're not talking about the military effect that the Ukrainians need to survive. Uh, it needs to be tens of billions. Let's switch now to what Germany's doing herself. Germany um, announced uh, this week that they're going to build a new ammunition plant to build 155 millimeter ammunition, nothing else. Uh, it's being built by Rheinmetall. Uh, it's going to cost about 300 million euros to build. Um, they gra- did the ground- groundbreaking this week, and that plant will produce its first rounds pretty much the first week of January 2024. So it takes about 11 months to produce a complete ammunition plant. Uh, 2020, 2025, 2025. 2025, my apologies, 2025. But so it takes about 11 months to produce a complete ammunition plant where you have all the skills, all the capabilities. And what I think is quite impressive about this um, ammunition plant is that its capacity, uh, it will eventually, they say, uh, produce 200,000 artillery rounds a year and about just under under 2,000 tonnes of explosive. So it's vertically integrated, uh, 200,000 rounds a year. That starts to be material multiplied up. And, And that's the sort of capability that will eventually get put into Ukraine. The problem is that if you're putting that sort of capability uh, where you don't currently have a plant, you don't currently have employees. And Rheinmetall has got plant, employees, logistics all set up um, uh, in Saxony anyway. But if you, uh, you know, if you put it in, into Ukraine where you don't have those, it'll take twice as long and it'll take longer to ramp up. So putting in industrial capability is great. And also it makes it more affordable for the Ukrainians, but it will take multiple years. And so I think that the problem for Europe, Western Europe, is that we've got to up the ante enormously over the next two to three years because Ukraine isn't going to be remotely um, self-sufficient. And the amount of ammunition required is, you've got to be thinking in blocks of a million rounds here and a million rounds there. And then you have what's required to actually have military effect on the battlefield. So just one final thought on this. Um, If you look at what European industrial capacity was before the uh, Ukraine war started. It was under, um, and, and this isn't production, this is what the plants could do. It was under 400,000 rounds of artillery a year. And that was scattered between, you know, eight, nine um, uh, companies uh, knocking around Europe, some of them with uh, smaller plants in different countries. Um, but, you know, well under half a million plant uh, rounds a year of 155, 122 or, or mortar. Um, end of 2025, that will have tripled, be about 1.2 million. Um, and 2027, 
on our estimates, and we're tracking this quite carefully, it's going to be just under two, uh, two uh, million rounds. That is, that's a big ramp up, but it's, you know, four and a half year old, you know, three and a half plus years away. That's a long time to wait uh, for this capacity to get in. And what is needed to speed it up is for European governments to spend more, to build more plants like the German government is, is doing with Rheinmetall. You know, we need those in France, in Italy, in the UK, um, uh, in uh, the Baltic states, um, in Scandinavia. If we got that sort of commitment, that would start to deliver the military effect. We're not seeing it yet. And a, you know, a couple of million euros a year uh, from France, Germany, UK isn't enough. Our former President Trump's statements, combined with the Estonian uh, intelligence warning that the Russians are going to be attacking Europe, it is only a matter of time. It's not. It's not. A, it's not an if. It's a when question. Whether in five to ten years, um, and the Economist has said actually Europe probably should be spending closer to three percent of GDP. Does does the fear the U.S. is disengaging? Right. I mean, for the first time, I think the most interesting thing is for the first time, a lot of the Republicans who would have you know, would have contradicted Trump and said, no, 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 you know, he's wrong, have, have not done that. Lindsey Graham and a number of other, you know, Lindsey Graham skipped Verkunda this year uh, instead of instead of attending uh, are, are backing the message uh, that their party leader is is developing uh, or transmitting. Do, do you get a sense that Europe is going to spend more quickly to drive these needles forward and and deliver more capability because ultimately, you know, on, depending on how things go in November here, I mean, I, I think you heard Trump speak. He's he's not going to be helping Europe. Yeah, and and you know that 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 is panicking politicians and officials. The brutal truth, though, is the further away you are from Russia the less it cuts through. There's no cut through in the UK at all. UK defence budget is what it is. We're spending a lot of money on nuclear stuff. We're spending absolutely nothing extra on, you know, serious conventional stuff, let alone actually uh, homeland defence. The UK defence budget is not going up anything like it should be. France really isn't either. Spain isn't. Italy isn't. So, you know, if, if you are west or south, you're not, you're not spending. If you are north and east, you are starting to spend 3% is absolutely right. It should probably be more. The idea that 2% is a level that gives NATO um, safety is absolute bull. 2% was just the lowest bar that could be set that some countries hadn't had, you know, a, a slight ability to get to. It was a, uh, it, it had no greater uh, importance than that. 3%, you know, I mean, remember during the Cold War, uh, NATO was spending between four and six percent. That's what it takes when you when you start fighting a uh, or preparing to fight a really serious war. Um, so the unfortunate fact is we'll either have a war first or our taxes will go up. Um, that may be one for another podcast. Uh, indeed. And uh, in about 20 seconds, because we do have to wrap up and I have one quick question to ask, Ron. Do you think what saves Ukraine are these bilateral security agreements and a rapid accession into the EU? Do you think that Ukraine is is just simply running out of steam, and by the time it gets more help, it would simply be too late, given the Russians are building up a lot of manpower and a lot of equipment and are beginning to demonstrate new capabilities? At the moment, the latter. These, bi these bilaterals, as structured, are just no way enough. 
uh, there, there, there you have it. And I hope people are listening. Uh, Ron, uh, really quickly, we're talking about stepping up capability, but one of the things we've increasingly been hearing, whether from Dr. LaPlante or Frank Kendall or anybody else is the, the budgeting, you know, even though outlays are up and you guys did a great report on that, the outlays may be up, but the new program starts are complicated by going from CR to CR, from continuing resolution to continuing resolution. Ultimately, is this system moving as quickly as it can or should? Because, you know, we heard, as I said, from Dr. LaPlante, that at this point, it's a little bit less the supply chain problems and more sort of the budgetary ability to move money uh, at the at the speed that's required in the way that's required. What's, what's the sense that you have uh, on uh, the ecosystem and how it can flex? And then maybe one last question, what do you make of the Russian ASAT? any satellite capability they're considering fielding. And then we, we've got to wrap, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, CR to CR is clearly not productive, right? Be because you can't do new program starts, so you're constrained. So clearly from, from that perspective, that slows things, right? I mean, new program starts are complicated enough when you have a normal budget environment and this is not a normal budget environment. So, you know, clearly right. that, that slows things down, um, which is unfortunate, right? I guess there's no other way to, fr to frame it. Um, so, you know, hopefully one day we get back to budget normalcy, but I mean, we just haven't for a very long time. So I'm not optimistic about that. Um, and then maybe on the, the, the satellite threat, a change in messaging that we have heard from the companies and from the government itself is that space is now a contested domain. So, right. you know, the, the Russians having a capability to do this or whoever the Chinese, I guess they're the, the two, you know, that everybody looks at right now, um, shouldn't have surprised anybody, to, you know, just as a matter of fact, right? I mean, giving them all the messaging and everything really didn't surprise me. Um, uh, so, you know, all right, so it's a contested domain. Um, you know, the days of thinking about space as this, you know, peaceful place for exploration, I guess, are kind of blown out the door. Um, and, and now, since it's a contested domain, you know, your earlier commentary that, you know, we have to go from a merchant marine to kind of more of a full-on Navy, that that's probably right. And, and it's just a matter of fact. Um, and, and and this move from, you know, large bestoke, bespoke satellites to some mix of that and the proliferated is a move in that direction, right? You can't knock out the whole net, right? Um, it's big, big space out there, even if you have some sort of... Um, electric pulse right. weapon it's still a lot of ground to cover so if you if you have a proliferated system and there's been you know clear movement in that direction um that helps build in um uh you know the the the, the, dyna the dynamicism in a network that you need um to um be hardened um so uh, they seem to be moving in that direction but uh, again that shouldn't have surprised anybody and Richard, before we go, uh, I almost totally forgot we have to talk briefly about the Singapore Air Show and your expectations. Uh, obviously, every other year, uh, the region's most important air show. What do you expect to hear? Yeah, it's going to be a very busy one, I imagine. You know, it's uh, kind of at the epicenter of security concerns, of course, and a massive rearmament wave across the entire region. And, of course, the arrival of quite a few indigenous new producers. Uh, so, you know, or I should say emerging producers. So it's going to be fascinating. I wish I was going. My, my uh, co-managing director, Kevin Michaels, will be there. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing his uh, updates. But, you know, from a defense side, you're going to see a very heavy presence from, say, the South Koreans, uh, the Indians and, and whoever else. 
because, of course, they've got emerging programs they'd love to sell in the region. The U.S., of course, mindful of reinforcing security relationships, possibly through arms sales with Singapore, which, of course, uh, has uh, shown some degree of, uh, shall, shall we say, less than 100 percent alignment with uh, the U.S. vis-a-vis China. And speaking of China, on the commercial front, you'll probably see the debut, almost certainly see the deb- debut, the international debut of the C919 jetliner. So lots going on there, I expect. Indeed. And we'll talk more about it uh, next week. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I hope you uh, guys have uh, what's left of a great uh, holiday weekend. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks to all of you uh, for listening. And a reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on Naval and Maritime Matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our own J.J. Gertler. Uh, Thanks very much again. We'll be back again tomorrow with our Look Ahead uh, program uh, with Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners. Until then, hope everybody has a great day, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much.